Okay, gang, I'm back, and this time with uh, an introduction. Uh, This is meant to be listened to before you read this week's reading. We're going to spend all week on at least a section of H.L.A. Hart's The Concept of Law. It's just hard to overstate how important this work is. It's a 1961 book by Hart, and it is perhaps, maybe not the definitive, but a pretty much definitive statement of positivism. And there have been lots of variations on this, footnotes on this, but this is probably one of the, if not the most famous statement of what we'll call legal positivism. And what that is exactly, we're going to, well, I'll give you a little bit now, but we're going to discover more about it and get a better appreciation first by reading Hart, but then also by contrasting it with people, you know, the works of people who disagree with Hart. Up to now, we've been reading some of the more famous pieces in legal realism, and we've seen critiques there of this idea of formalism, the idea that law is a formal system for deriving determinate rules or in a determinate way deciding cases. We've even seen critiques that it may be impossible to derive such rules. So law is what judges say it is. It is a prediction of what judges will do. Well, what should judges do? Maybe they should use economics and statistics to figure out the best possible rule that will make the most people happy but we shouldn't use words as talismans and, and, and think that they have some special meaning some, when, in fact, they are nothing but transcendental nonsense. So we've seen these kinds of critiques of the law as, in fact, involving lots and lots of choices to be made, but so much legal analysis pretending that there are no such choices, either by pretending that history provides the answers, logic provides the answers, or that morality provides the answers. Okay, so legal realism rejects all of that and suggests that there is choice. So what are positivists? Well, the claim here is that the law can be identified by rules themselves ultimately being, let's just say, a matter of custom. In a nutshell, the way most people describe it is that law can be identified by social facts alone without resort to moral principles. Again, the idea is that law can be identified. What is the law and what is not the law? We can decide between those two things just by looking at social facts. The fact that a legislature, a group called the legislature, did something. The fact that there is a thing on a piece of paper. These kinds of things that have happened in the world, these things identify what is the law and what is not. How could it be otherwise? Well, some, some people, natural lawyers, believe that the content of the law is determined by morality, general principles of morality, principles that we can derive There are other jurists like Dworkin who believe that law is an act of interpretation. We'll get into that later as we'll see. Okay, so to be a positivist theory, you need to take a strong position on the difference between law and morality and the connection between law and morality. All right, we're going to get into theories that, that, again, like Dworkin's, that disagree with this notion of positivism after we get through the concept of law. One interesting thing here, though, is that this, this great statement of positivism takes aim, well, in, in part at natural law, but, but mainly at other positivists, okay? So Hart's theory of positivism is distinguished from that of John Austin, who is famous for the imperative theory, the theory of law as commands backed by threats, the commands of a sovereign habitually obeyed backed by threats, and from Holmes's prediction theory that law is just a prediction of how cases will be resolved in the future. And also from this guy, Kelson, who has this idea of a grund norm, that there is some basic norm and, and all, the, all other laws are, or the validity of all other laws is guaranteed by complying with that norm. Um, we're not going to talk so much about that one, but we will talk about the first two. I'm just going to go through in this podcast the first 
few chapters of, a con- of the concept of law, enough so that you'll have some context for the chapters that you read, and so that we'll have a good basis for understanding the critiques of Hart and be able to take our own positions. All right, well, let's get started with chapter one. Hart gets us started by asking a question that you guys might have, and that anyone kind of impatient with this kind of philosophizing might have. And that's like, why do people even ask what law is? What kind of question is this ridiculous what is law question? After all, he says, no one asks what is medicine. It's not like you go to medical school and you you spend weeks or months studying what the concept of medicine is. You know, maybe in a textbook, he says, there'll be some a few kind of cursory introductions to the idea, and, and, and then you're off to the races. Well, Hart says that this question, this this, uh, you know, deeply philosophical question, it's really just a broad question meant to cover different sources of discomfort we have when thinking about what we're doing when we do law. Okay, so here are the three big ones. And, And these three questions drive the entire book. First, is law only rules backed by threats? And here he gives an example of a gunman. This is the gunman who comes up to you and says, your money or your life. Gunman has given you an order, maybe, and the gunman has threatened to shoot you if you don't comply with that order. Is that really a complete model of law? Is law nothing but the application by people with power of orders to you backed by threats of bad things if they don't happen in a way that's similar to Holmes and the bad man, right? So uh, that's Austin's theory. This is the imperative theory that law is basically orders backed by threats. Is there a difference, Hart asks, between being obliged to follow an order and having something which we might call an obligation. And and here Hart, he may be frustratingly to some people, but he makes a fine distinction using similar words between being obliged to do something or like having to do something because of the exigencies of the situation and having an obligation. What is a legal obligation? And does the gunman example take full account of what we think it means to have a legal obligation? what we think as participants in the law to have a legal obligation. Okay, that was question one. Is law really just rules backed by threats? Number two, or orders backed by threats. Number two, what is the connection between law and morality? Is law only a prediction of what courts will do? That's kind of one extreme. Is an unjust law really a law? Is it? Uh, Is the, the Nazi legal regime, was that a legal system? Or was that so evil that we should deny it the status of law or that we can't call it law? Okay, number three, what are legal rules, really? (laughs) What are they? So when you say that's a legal rule, what do we mean by that? Do they really exist? And and by that, maybe we mean do courts actually apply rules? Do rules kind of constrain what they do? Or are what we call legal rules just kind of rhetorical window dressing on what are really results-driven rulings? Um, So what's, what's the difference between convergent behavior too. This is just people happening to do the same thing and we all kind of agree to do the same thing and obligatory rules. So on that point, Hart gives um, he gives many nice examples in this book, but here's one. So consider kind of a, a, well, I guess a social rule that says that you'll take your hat off when you walk into a church. Okay? And one way of understanding that situation is that we see that every time people go into a church, they take their hats off. Hart says something, what's going on here, though, is more than just convergent behavior. It's more than that everyone happens to be doing the same thing. There's a social consequence for not following this rule. Maybe unlike law, that social consequence is not 
what Hart calls like organized or, or definite doesn't have those tendencies. But the way Hart describes it is that, for example, a judge doesn't see a rule as a prediction of what he will do in the future, but as a reason to do something. So rules are, uh, are signals about what to do. They guide conduct. They aren't just the basis for predictions about what will happen when they're violated. Now, Hart says that all rules have what he calls in, in this book a penumbra of uncertainty in which a judge must kind of choose what to do and that there's freedom. But critically for Hart, this penumbra doesn't mean that there's no core. It doesn't mean that the law is totally uncertain. Okay. Now, all of this, what we call rules, what we call reasons and guidance, this is not just about words for Hart. It's about sharpening our perception of the things under study. So the, he gives this example of St. Augustine on, on time. He said, someone asks you, you know, what is time? And, and, and you kind of know what it is, but you, you, you realize you kind of don't know what it is if you're asked to explain it. Well, the same thing about law. It, it's not enough to specify it in terms of more general things because the whole concept is confused. And so not, we're not really looking for a definition so much as for an explanation of a concept. So what, what, do, you, what do I mean by that? He gives two examples here, which are, are kind of nice. And that is that if someone asked you what an elephant is, well, their confusion might be about, you know, what kind of animal it is. So you, you might give a description of an elephant in terms of other animals and the specific features of the animal called an elephant. And that would say, oh, you say, okay, I get it. An elephant is a particular kind of animal that has these categories. Or you might define a triangle as, as being a shape and you would distinguish it from other shapes. Law is not really like that, Hart says. Law is a concept that doesn't really inherit from other concepts. And so we have to define it, I don't know, from the ground up, but we've got to do more work to understand what's going on. Okay, fine, you might say. Why not? Law as orders backed by threats. That's just what law is. It's, it's, it's the laws. It's the statute specifies some conduct that you shall not do. And if you do that conduct, then you have to pay the consequence. It is an order to do or not to do things backed by threats about what will happen if you do or don't do those things. That seems to be a positivist explanation for what the law is. It just is those commands. Hmm. Well, this brings us to chapter two, in which Hart critiques directly Austin's theory of law's orders backed by threats. So here's the question. Is a gunman's order for money or your life a law? Is it like a law? Hart says that commands that are most similar to law, first of all, they tend to invoke authority and hierarchy not principally the threat of violence like the gunman. I mean, just think about the word command. As Hart says, you might think of the military when you hear this word. The word command, it almost, it almost implies, it almost has within it the sense of authority and the sense that someone is in a higher status who is commanding the thing. The gunman situation doesn't really feel like that, first of all. So in a way, orders backed by threats as we'll see with, with many of these critiques, it's not so much that one cannot possibly describe law that way, but is that a useful description of what's going on? It kind of doesn't feel right, does it? Secondly, Hart says that law tends to be composed of general orders to general classes, right? The, the gunman situation doesn't really have this. It's a one-off. It's, it's, a, it, it's a one gunman talking directly to a, another person. And, and it's a one-off in another sense. 
uh, the gunman situation. It's it's not a standing order. Laws seem to be more like standing orders, right? You, there's a speed limit, and that's the speed limit from the moment that the sign goes up. And it will continue to be the speed limit until the sign changes or goes down. It doesn't rely on there continuing to be a police officer or someone there asserting, don't speed or else, don't speed or else, don't speed or else. The law, we think, has an enduring quality. And perhaps most importantly, Hart says, that laws are made against kind of a background of a general habit of obedience. When we think about law, we don't think about fleeting instances of power like the gunman has. Here's what Hart says. He says, mere temporary ascendancy of one person over another is naturally thought of as the polar opposite of law, with its relatively enduring and settled character. And indeed, in most legal systems, to exercise such short-term coercive power as the gunman has would constitute a criminal offense. And further, you know, Hart goes on to say that the kind of fleetingness you see in the gunman situation, if, if, if we think that that's all that law is, is that just orders backed by threats, that the fleeting character, that can't really reproduce the features that we observe in our law, its stability and other things. Okay, we'll get to that more as we go through the book. The last claim he makes in, in chapter two is that lawmakers need to be internally supreme and externally independent. All right, I don't want to make too much of this right now. Uh, I just want to mention that. Maybe we can talk more about it as needed. Okay, to summarize before we get to chapter three, you know, where have we been? I just want to emphasize three basic questions that we're asking here. Is law equivalent to, if we want to ask what law is, is it just orders backed by threats? Two, what is the connection between law and morality? Is there any necessary connection between them? And finally, what are legal rules? What, is it, what does it mean for a legal rule to exist? Okay, And we saw in the second chapter some reasons to suspect that this description of orders backed by threats, it just doesn't feel right. It, it seems to misdescribe the situation. The, the gunman scenario seems very different in several different ways from the situation that we think of when we think of laws being passed and applied to us. All right. There may be ways of dealing with that, but there is one more critical problem that Hart identifies with the orders backed by threats. We've seen this before. We saw it in Hofeld. And you might be asking, well, how is everything orders backed by threats? And that, that seems just to say that all law is rights and duties, that there are just duties, and those are the ones which are passed by the, so- the, that are created by the sovereign. There seems to be something else here. What about powers? Okay, that's chapter three. So think of wills, think of contracts, think of marriage. There are many things that we think of as laws which don't order us to do things and threaten us if we don't. Instead, they grant us powers. How to take account of that in an orders backed by threats theory? If we're trying to describe what law is, it seems like the commands of a sovereign backed by threats, maybe that's not good enough if that theory can't take account of the fact that law also gives to people powers to change their legal status. Well, here Hart describes two possible answers and finds them both wanting. Okay, the, the first is, this, as some positivists tried, to characterize the nullification of a contract or a will or as a kind of sanction, as a punishment. And so the order is that if you're going to make a contract, you have to do it in a, in a particular way. And the threat is that if you don't do it in that way, then we'll find your contract void. 
it's kind of a weird way of describing the situation, right? Um, and in fact, Hart's argument is that it distorts what law is to those practicing it, to describe it in that way. Okay, here's another way, and he finds kind of the same critique. Maybe those uh, contract law, the law of wills, maybe those aren't laws themselves, but they are kind of fragments of the law. They are pieces of the law. And the command issued by the sovereign is kind of the sum of a series of things, each of which is an if-then statement. Okay, so, so the Constitution is just a fragment. If Congress validly passes a law, then a court should apply it. And so if we want to know what the orders are, what is the law, it is going to be all of those statutes which comply with that kind of constitutional command. And so there's a statute that says that you have to drive a certain speed limit. There's a constitution that gives a legislature the power to pass such statutes. But all of those things are not laws themselves until you put them all together. So my duty to drive under the speed limit is the result of the kind of compound command made up of all these fragments, the constitutional power of the legislature to pass such a law and the statute relying on that constitutional power, which does a certain thing. Okay, now Hart's objection to both of these framings is really fundamental. As I said, he thinks that it distorts the way that people think about law. It seems kind of alien. It's not the way, you know, we we don't think of constitutional law as fragments of law or contract law as fragments of law. We think of them as laws, but laws of a different kind. But further, both of these miss what Hart describes as law's normativity, or what we mean by that is basically the way that law provides reasons for action, and not just predictions about what's going to happen. So to go back to Holmes, Hart says that it's more, what's more important in the law are not the signals to the bad man of what will happen if he violates these duties, which may be compound or whatever. It's the way that law provides signals to the puzzled man, the man who's just trying to find out what to do, the man who wants to organize his affairs. Law provides us some guidance, and laws that give us powers give us such guidance. And it misdescribes the situation to insist that those are just little pieces of, of, uh, of, of larger duties. Hart says that the, the principal functions of the law as a means of social control are not to be seen in private litigation or prosecutions, which represent vital but still ancillary provisions for the failures of the system. Rather, it's to be seen in the diverse ways in which the law is used to control, to guide, and to plan life out of court. And so to have a theory of law this is me talking again, to have a theory of law which focuses entirely on the, on kind of the, the courts pounding the gavel and, and ordering someone to do something that they don't want to do is to miss the way that law operates in our lives as a means for guiding our conduct and helping us plan. Compare this with the rules for games. Maybe take a game of soccer, okay? Um, do the rules of soccer only provide instructions to referees or do they guide the behaviors of players and participants. The rules provide their own reasons for compliance and not just commands to officials or fragments of commands to officials which become full commands to player when the uh, to players when the officials uh, blow the whistle. So we're going to get more into this as we uh, delve farther into uh, in, into heart here but I think this analogy to games we're going to find useful in, in further readings as well. He has a couple more critiques here that that you know, rules in our legal system and in many legal systems apply to the lawmakers themselves. 
Uh, it doesn't look so much like the gunman that, that some laws originate in custom, and so you can't find a real order that gave them some legal status. All right. These are minor, I think, compared to the earlier objections. But let me just summarize by reading from Hart here, okay? He says, The theory of law as coercive orders meets at the outset with the objection that there are varieties of law found in all systems which, in three principal respects, don't fit this description. First, even a penal statute, which comes nearest to it, has often a range of application different from that of orders given to others. For such a law may impose duties on those who make it as well as on others. Secondly, other statutes are unlike orders in that they don't require persons to do things, but may confer powers on them. They don't impose duties, but offer facilities for the creation of legal rights and duties within the coercive framework of the law. Thirdly, though the enactment of a statute is in some ways analogous to the giving of an order, some rules of law originate in custom and don't owe their legal status to any such conscious law-creating act. All right, that summarizes what I've already been saying, but I think it's good to hear it a couple of times. And this is at least a portion of Hart's big, like, negative critique of the existing and dominant theories of legal positivism. All right, one more chapter here that I want to go over before we get to the reading for this week. Chapter 4. Austin's command theory, orders backed by threats, relied on something else that Hart sees as problematic. A certain notion of sovereignty, which conflicts with the idea that all law is, is orders backed by threats. All right, so here's the definition under attack. The sovereign is the person or body of persons whose orders the great majority of the society habitually obey and who does not habitually obey any other person or persons. This is kind of what you have to do if you imagine some supreme order giver. This person that others obey and therefore functions as a lawgiver and that doesn't obey anybody else. Well, one immediate problem with this and is the need to account for continuity in the legal system, the persistence of laws. So if we think of a monarch and, and the example that he gives and others, as we'll see, have given is this monarch Rex, who's just a, an autocrat who can do whatever he wants. And maybe there is habitual obedience to the orders of, of Rex. Well, what about when Rex dies or abdicates and Rex too comes in? Well, maybe maybe legal systems, we think, have rules to specify succession in advance. But are those rules of succession orders backed by threats? And and a rule of succession gives a right to Rex 2, right? That doesn't accord with the habit definition. No one's in the habit of obeying such orders. But this whole idea that, that rules are just the things that people are in the habit of obeying, Hart sees as mistaken. Habits are... If people have the same habit, if we have a whole group of people in the habit obeying, of obeying Rex's laws, it means they have a convergent behavior. They're all behaving in the same way, which may be just chance or who knows. Whereas when you think about a rule, what does it mean to violate a rule? Well, Hart says that's generally regarded as a, as a lapse or a fault. We can, we can criticize people for violating the rule, not just for what they did, but for the violation of the rule. So the existence of a rule is considered a reason to criticize. And here's one of the really important ideas in the concept of law and Hart's jurisprudence more generally, and that's that rules have an internal aspect. We'll do more with this. This isn't the last time we'll talk about it. But here's the example. Chess players don't just have convergent behavior in the way they move the queen. It's not just that when you, when you, play chess with somebody and, and they move the queen in the same way that you do. It's not that you just happen to converge on the same kind of behaviors. It's that the rules of chess themselves 
give you a reason for moving the queen in that way. So to talk about people, you know, to say that law is just having, you know, the, the populace which has a habit of obeying the rules of Rex is, is to misdescribe the way people perceive rules and therefore to misdescribe what law is. Rex's power, according to rule, is recognized as justified because of that rule. So it, it's the rule is a reason to make it. It's not just it's not just that we can make a prediction that Rex's rules are likely to be obeyed. The fact that the rules the, that that is a reason to make the prediction that they'll be obeyed. Oh, another example: a law passed a hundred years ago. Will it be applied today? Why do we obey laws that which were passed long ago? And here Hart says it's not because of a habit of obedience to people who are long dead. Rather, it's a recognition of a social rule that keeps that law alive. Okay, so the persistence of rules is not due to a habit of obedience either to people long dead or even to present authority. Because whoever's in charge now, they may not have said anything about that rule. And yet we have a sense, or at least in our system we do, and in many systems they do, uh, have a a sense that the law which was passed 100 years ago will be applied today unless there are reasons to depart. All right, there's just a little bit more here, but I'm going to leave it there because I think this gets us into the right position to start chapter 5, which is where your reading picks up. And here we see not just Hart's criticism, but Hart begins to construct a, a new, more nuanced, more interesting, I think, theory of what law really is. And we'll pick up there next time. (laughs) 